This evening I want to uh, share my love of samadhi or concentration practice and also give a lot of tips on how to practice, a lot of further tips that have been uh, gleaned over the years in my own experience and then also uh, learning from others about what they have found. So I want to keep the talk especially practical, although um, I want to say a little bit more about the nature of samadhi or concentration. Uh, And want to speak uh, really about five different um, aspects of samadhi or concentration practice. First, say a little bit more about the nature of samadhi or concentration. Secondly, uh, some more about the place of samadhi generally in our practice, which is also anticipating the next two phases of this retreat, uh, insight practice and then cultivating that kind of open and spacious awareness. Thirdly, uh, some, some of the different ways that we practice uh, samadhi or concentration. And then uh, a large uh, amount of time really to explore some of the challenges of concentration practice. Uh, what some typical difficulties or challenges are, ways that we may find ourselves a little bit stuck with the practice. And then um, at the end talk some more about the relationship of concentration practice to uh, insight practice and the practice of cultivating open awareness. So I spoke some in giving the instructions this morning about the term samadhi, how concentration is not a very adequate translation into English and can can be misleading for many of us in that it can suggest a kind of over-focusing or over-exertion, kind of a almost a, a tense quality of really staying with something. Whereas certainly in my experience, and I think it's also very much in the text, the qualities of concentration are more related to ease and relaxation that helps us nonetheless to be very present and in a sense unified in our being. And I spoke some about how that understanding of the unification of our being is one of the main traditional ways of understanding and speaking of concentration practice. Um, People have tried to find other translations and uh, one translation which has its virtues is to speak of samadhi as composure. Another is simply to speak of steadying the mind. And I, again, I'll repeat the phrase I like from Richard Shankman. He speaks of samadhi as unifying the mind in steady, undistracted awareness. Now, one of the, one of the aspects of samadhi which points towards its quality of ease and relaxation is the fact that samadhi is a very natural capacity. 
you know, maybe we see it more readily in children. There just can be with a phenomenon just for long periods of time. Or we can think of our own experiences at times of being quite absorbed in an activity. I remember when I was, uh, you know, six, seven, eight years old, I I used to really be into uh, imaginary games, you know, games in which one, you know, for me, I was interested in baseball and I would develop all-time all-star teams for all the teams and then play them off against each other in a series of games. And I could be with that for three hours or four hours and just be totally there. And probably each of us can recall times when we've just been absorbed. And, and for me, they've really stayed with me. You know, there was a time I remember in college when I usually didn't pull all-nighters. But one evening I did. And I, I, I felt a sense of absorption just working on some writing that lasted four, five hours and was just very sustained. And, and when I met the dawn, it felt like I was in a very altered, beautiful state. And so there might be evocations for you. Interestingly, uh, the Buddha himself, at a very pivotal moment in his practice, remembered back to his own childhood when he was under a rose apple tree and went into this beautiful, deep, concentrated state in which he was totally at peace. And he later recalled that and was quite significant in his own journey because it told him that essentially that pleasure was not a problem. (laughs) He had been doing ascetic practices for a lot of years and the concentrative state was deeply, deeply pleasurable. And as the experiences I was mentioning were very, very pleasurable, this very natural quality of concentration. Another experience I remember, and this this may evoke some of your own memories, was of uh, being by the ocean. And at the ocean, I loved to come out from the water and light in the sand. And there was a way that being with the sun and the sand and the quiet took me into a very deep reverie and quite an altered state and quite a a peaceful place that I loved. It was deeply pleasurable, but not in the usual sense of pleasure. It was kind of a deepened, unusual kind of pleasure, which is that which is pointed to with, with concentration practice. We can just really look at, even look at, uh, um, I don't know, the deer or the turkeys and watch them sometimes in incredible concentration. Watch a cat looking at potential supper, <laughs> right? And there's, there's, so it's a very natural quality of those of us with minds. In the teachings of the Buddha, concentration is quite central. uh, Concentration or samadhi appears on quite a few of the famous lists of qualities. 
you know, you know, partly because he was teaching in an oral tradition, he used the tool of compiling lists of the three this, the four this, the five that, the seven this, so people could remember more easily. And so there is uh, among these lists, the list of the five spiritual faculties, including concentration, faith, mindfulness, and so forth. There are the five spiritual powers, includes concentration, the seven factors of awakening, the qualities which we both cultivate that take us towards awakening, and the qualities that express awakening. Uh, Concentration is on that list, in fact, the next to the last. The qualities on that list include mindfulness, interest and inquiry, energy, effort, um, joy, tranquility, equanimity, concentration. And we also find the factor of concentration on the list of the core practices of this whole path. The teaching of the Noble Eightfold Path has three meditative trainings in uh, concentration, in mindfulness, and in wise effort. And so it's very, very central, very, very key to, um, very, very key to uh, all of this practice. One aspect which is quite important is that the understanding of the Noble Eightfold Path is that all of the factors are interrelated. And that, that's a very crucial point. And, and what, when they are interrelated, interrelated like that, they, they have the appellation uh, right, is usually the translation, like right mindfulness, right concentration and so forth. And that's distinguished from a term which is used in the text, which is uh, wrong mindfulness or wrong concentration, because you could imagine that we could use deep concentration in the interest of being a better burglar or doing things which are quite unethical. I imagine a lot of people who do very unskillful things may have deep concentration. I imagine many of the Nazi planners were deeply concentrated at times, right? And so a key aspect of uh, so-called right concentration, and we could also understand right, I think, uh, I would prefer a translation of something like mature or developed, and it's actually closer to the etymology of the word. The word is sama, which is connected with words like summary. Right is a more Victorian error translation, which can be misleading. You can see if you go down to see our our wheel of the Noble Eightfold Path, you'll see that uh, whoever was in charge of it, you know, 10 or 15 years ago decided not to use the word right for all the qualities. They said wise, which is not at all literal translation, but it, I think, captures the meaning better. So a little footnote there. Okay. The Buddha first learned, when he went on his spiritual quest, concentration practice. And he studied with some of the great teachers of his time. In those settings, the deep absorption of concentration where one is unified with the object was actually the aim of practice. 
And it, it took uh, quite a number of years for the Buddha to come to the conclusion that deep concentration could be very beneficial, very pleasurable, but didn't lead to freedom, didn't lead to liberation. In fact, partly because of the power of concentration, concentration can cover over our stuff. And we'll come back to that point. It can cover over our confusions, our delusions. It's a danger. One of the challenges of concentration is that it, uh, we can get attached to it and think that we're really there and we haven't looked at certain things. We haven't opened up to certain things. And I'll come back to that point. This was the Buddha's conclusion that uh, concentration is quite beautiful and very important, but he especially sees it as the means to the end of seeing clearly and becoming free. It helps us to penetrate into our experience more fully. I think I mentioned this morning that there are a lot of different ways to practice concentration in one of the key texts which uh, brings together a lot of the understanding of concentration, a text called the Vasudhimaga or the Path of Purification. The author Buddhaghosis is from the fifth century. He lists 40 different objects, 40 different potential objects of concentration. We can, we can use metta, we can use uh, breathing, we can, one of the techniques often used traditionally was to look at a colored disc, you know, and you probably have no, heard of people who concentrate by looking at a flame. You know, other people, this isn't in, among the 40 objects, but other people may chant or visualize. The, you know, I've, I've done a certain periods of Tibetan visualization and very similar experience to being with the breath at times in terms of how it shifts the body and, and, and opens up the mind. So one can use chanting, visualization, and so forth. In the tradition, it's, there are three kinds of concentration that are spoken of. One of them is um, called kanika samadhi, which is the concentrated mind working with uh, moving objects, working with different objects. This would be what we find when we bring the concentration to mindfulness practice or to insight practice. We can have a very still mind and be with moving objects. And that is given the name kanika or momentary uh, concentration or samadhi. A second form of concentration is called access concentration. And this is when the concentration gets stabilized to the point where it becomes more effortless. And, and there's a feeling almost like we are uh, just in the groove. That's not a technical term. In the Buddhist tradition, that was more like, sounds like meditative jazz or something. But, but uh, there, there can be a sense, and, and I imagine we've had this at times, of being in the groove of concentration. Another metaphor that's sometimes used is we are riding the rails and there's a kind of a steadiness, almost effortless. We're just with the object. And that is called access concentration because it gives us access to deeper absorptive forms of concentration. That's the third kind. These are called, uh, called the 
uh, jhanic states or the jhanas, J-H-A-N-A. And these are deep states of absorption, a kind of unification with the uh, object, which typically take um, quite a bit of practice before they arise. Uh, but it's good to know that there's a map, and if you read the text, you'll, you'll see uh, these states t- spoken about. And there is taken that there are uh, eight different forms of increasing depth of the, of the jhanas. So why is, why is concentration important? I mentioned that the, the understanding is that it's really necessary to, be, to help us to see more clearly. And I think we can see that with, with looking at the repetitive mind. We um, often are just taken away by the repetitive mind, the automatic mind, and a certain level of concentration helps us cut through that. With concentration, we notice the wandering mind more quickly. We're able to see it, when the mind reaches a certain level of stillness, those uh, moments of the repetitive mind have much less impact on the mind. They might appear just for a moment. Sometimes when the mind's quite still, they appear just as blips. And one can, in a state of stillness, sometimes be there with a lot of quiet and just notice that blip and say, oh, that was the beginning of financial concern dialogue number three. Right? And you can sometimes know this, quite interesting. You can know that just, you can recognize the blip, but it doesn't go anywhere when the mind is still. And you probably have seen that when, when there's deeper concentration, we're not taken away uh, as quickly or as long uh, when there's that concentration. It helps us to, to settle. And then and it's, it's on the basis of that settling that we can really see clearly, that we can notice and not be taken up by our usual uh, patterns, our usual habits, our usual ways of getting caught in the patterns of thinking. In a way, concentration practice starts to shift us out of, of having our, as it were, core reference point being the thinking, planning, manipulating, controlling self. It's a clear way to say it. <laughs> And we shift more towards the reference point of awareness. In a way, it's leading us to be able to move towards the second and third phases that we're working with in this retreat, where we can be with the passing phenomena with a lot of clarity and where we can open to a large awareness in which we have as the reference point more that large awareness and less the changing contents of awareness. It's one of the ways it's talked about in in the Thai forest tradition particularly. One of the powers of concentration is that we get a sense of some of the beauty and power of our own inward being. 
we have a sense, as we access more concentration, we have a sense of the, almost the, the uh, qualities of, of deep pleasure that can be there simply from our own being, simply from resting in our own being. There can be these qualities of peace, of stillness, of energy, of bliss. And it helps us to, in a way, um, not be quite so driven by outer pleasures and outer events. It gives a little more of a sense of inward self-sufficiency. And in which we may come to realize that the deepest pleasures are innate in our being. We don't have to go looking for them so much. And again, the core reason for concentration is that it lets us be able more to see things clearly, to see phenomena. And in this retreat, we're particularly focusing on the ability to see impermanence, to study, to notice the change of phenomena, to notice when there are moments of suffering or being caught or being stuck. And to notice those, to study those more clearly. And then to study the, the sense of self that may manifest at times and to increasingly be able to experience without what I, in my own teaching, have come to call a thick sense of self. That we, in, in a way, concentration practice thins the sense of self and all of this practices, and that helps us to open to insight and open to this deeper awareness. Practitioners, says the Buddha, develop concentration. A practitioner who is concentrated understands things as they really are. Another quotation from the Buddha, without the peace of concentration, without attaining to calm, without one-pointedness, that one should enter and abide in the emancipation of mind and heart. That cannot be. We need, we need that depth of concentration. So how to practice? A little bit more. We, I gave quite a few instructions this morning. A little bit more. We have this uh, sense of uh, just being with the breath, for most of us. Being with the one object just keeping on coming back. Uh, and we've, we've looked at how uh, we let the typical contents of the mind, when they are passing, be part of the background. And we keep the breath in the foreground. We let ourselves, in a way, be taken into and over by the breath. And um, I was thinking of a, a dialogue I had with my, my mom, whose name is Bernice. And Bernice is a musician. And uh, when we talk together, she always says, uh, when I say, well, let's meditate, and she says, I just want to do concentration practice. And, and she says, concentration practice is like music. And she, she talks about how when she was um, first learning to play the piano, and she was in some group, and they had to do some public performance. And she was seven years old and she was very nervous and self-conscious. 
And the teacher said, this isn't about you. <laughs> and just let yourself um, stay with the music. And, and she said, and so I just did that. <laughs> and she said, you know, later in her life, she was, uh, she did quite a bit of public work. Uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of workshops and public speaking. Um, and she said, I was never self-conscious. And it all came from that experience when I was seven. And she says, what I learned is that uh, in, in playing music, it's not good to have a sense of self or, about, or worry about how one's doing. She said, you have to let yourself be taken over by the music. And that's what we're inviting, being taken over by the breath. There's a sense in which uh, being with the breath can have a quality almost like a love affair. It can be very devotional. We can have a sense of appreciating the preciousness of this breath, which gives us life, which is so magical in a way, right? And we can have a sense of, let me be with the breath and May you teach me, O breath, about awareness, about the mind, as I stay with you. How precious that I can be with you. You give me life and you also teach me. How amazing. And it's possible, this is one of the ways that the uh, being with the breath can have this uh, quality of interest, right? You know, it's possible for the breath just to be, oh, it's just a breath again. Right? And we can get bored or become, you know, oh, it was so nice when I could study all the different ways that my mind wandered. <laughs> and here it's just, forget about that, just, or you know, notice it, but just keep coming back. And this devotional quality can be one of the ways that we actually bring in the heart and have a sense of uh, the beauty of the breath and almost have this devotional sense of this sense of, I will follow you, my breath, and I will be with you, and you will teach me. And if that's helpful, you can invite that sentiment, you know, multiple times during the day, if that helps. There are five traditional aspects of concentration that help us to deepen. These are sometimes called the five jhanic factors. They're factors that we cultivate and they also express deepening concentration. And it's helpful to um, think of them because they, again, they give us some ways to practice in a more skillful way. Uh, The first of these is called uh, vitaka and it's usually translated as connecting with the object. So part of what concentration practice, we have to connect with the breath, right? We have to continually repeat that connecting. We have to find the breath and connect with it, meaning be attentive to it. And that is um, necessary. Without that, concentration doesn't happen. And that's really the initial step to locate the breath and connect with it. And sometimes that's hard. The second of these five factors 
is called uh, vichara. And in this context, it means to sustain the connection with the object. How do we, we have to connect with the breath or connect with the main object, but how do we keep that uh, sustained attention to the object? You know, how do we, how do we do that? How do we become stabilized with the, with the breath? How do we settle? How do we uh, stay with it and cut through thinking? And this is again, very much a fruit of the continued, <coughs> excuse me, the continued return to the, to the object. We have to continually return. And in doing so, we keep cutting through the repetitive patterns. The third of these aspects is piti, uh, often translated as rapture or pleasure. As concentration deepens, there are qualities of pleasure which come about in our being. In the body, sometimes the pleasure of what Tija was speaking about as the subtle energies. There can be tingling, there can be a sense of a deep uh, pleasure. PT itself can sometimes be uh, quite active, even uncomfortable. Sometimes the energy can be very active in one's body, even to the point where we would say, enough of this already, enough pleasure. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like hard, sometimes it's actually hard. Uh, but it's a very natural quality. Um, and it can be very, very nourishing to just be with the pleasure of our own being for sustained periods of time. Can be very healing, for example, if we've had um, difficulties or distress. Can be quite healing actually, even if there are wounded places in our being, to be with this quality of deep pleasure in in the body. There are lines in the, in the old text where the Buddha speaks about the pleasure of seclusion, the pleasure of awakening. And he, he, he says quite a number of times, don't be afraid of the pleasure. It's actually can be quite a good thing. We can get attached to it, of course, but it actually is concentration and the pleasure of concentration is not something to avoid. It can really open up our being in quite beautiful ways. The fourth quality is sukha, which is usually translated as happiness or contentment. And this is sort of a lighter quality of well-being. Contentment, there's just a kind of, maybe call it peace. And as the concentration deepens, these states may be, may be present as well again, can be very deeply healing to be with pleasure, to be with this contentment, to be with this contentment, not to be with discontentment. Sorry. Um, And the fifth quality is one-pointedness, where we are just with the object, that quality of uh, being single-pointed on an object. So, sounds good? Want to sign up for pleasure, contentment, single-pointedness, connecting with the object. Anyone want? Well, you did sign up. You're here. (laughs) So, um, nonetheless, 
at least for a few of us, those have not all arrived. And so what are the challenges of concentration practice? There are quite a few of them, as you may gather. And it, it actually, I just want to say that uh, what we're experiencing in this retreat of really going right into ded- what we call dedicated concentration practice is challenging. You know, you've stayed with it, it has its ups and downs, and it's hard. And as you may know uh, from doing other insight meditation retreats, we're, the, the usual practice is we would start with the breath and then, but we wouldn't be quite so dedicated. And there'd be the interest of watching all sorts of different states, insights of saying, oh, look at my mind there. Oh, let's just be with that. And what we're doing here has its hard aspects. We're just really doing dedicated practice. The aim is to deepen in a relatively short time our capacity for concentration. That's why we're doing this. And hopefully to, for many of us to uh, arouse the love of concentration practice, we offer uh, one concentration retreat here at Spirit Rock every August, which is about uh, typically nine days or so, which we can do. And also if we do some of the longer retreats, we can, one could uh, do concentration practice in a dedicated way. And there are also some teachers who offer uh, retreats where we can just stay with concentration practice. So what are the challenges? I want to name five of them and then give the antidotes to all of them. (laughs) So the first is, and these will be familiar, and some of these uh, I heard in the groups this afternoon. The first is having overactive minds and being distracted. Anyone relate to that? Okay, just a few. (laughs) Have raised their hand. A second is sleepiness and low energy. Anyone relate to that? Okay. It's helpful actually to look around because one of the problems of not talking to each other too much is we think that my meditation practice is uniquely problematic. <laughs> and actually we are collectively having the same issues <laughs> for many. Okay, and the third um, challenge to concentration practice is that we often undergo what we call, often call a purification process, where we go through sometimes challenging states, emotional, in terms of our bodies, in terms of the way our mind's working, in which certain aspects of our being come to the surface that are often hidden. And they come to the surface and they're, in a sense, processed. That's part of the process of concentration. A fifth is attachment to concentrated states. You could imagine pleasure, contentment, peace. <laughs> and we, we can get attached to those, those states. And then a fifth challenge I want to talk about is striving and over-efforting. So these, are, these are probably the, the five most uh, significant challenges. So a little bit about each of these. Um, with the overactive mind, we've talked about a number of different ways to help with that. We, we've emphasized the embodied practices, the qigong, um, as a very important way to calm the body, calm the nervous system, uh, to uh, really work with, uh, work with that overactive mind. We can use the techniques we mentioned this morning of counting the breaths. Um, we can also use 
uh, tools which are really aspects of skillful effort. Um, We can uh, sometimes really just be firm as if we were coaching a puppy when our mind goes for the 32nd time to this thought pattern, right? Or we, we enter into, you know, our mind just goes down that groove to a very familiar pattern. And it's possible sometimes to just say, no, not now, like we were training a puppy. That can be skillful effort with our, our thoughts. Just to say, no, not now. Sometimes in my own practice, I've needed to actually summon almost like fiery energy. You know, in some of my practice, I've summoned like, for me, the image of a tiger has often been very useful when there were just these, you know, thoughts that just keep on, the same ones keep happening. And I just go, I summon that tiger energy. Mm. <laughs> and, and something ha- really helped doing that. You know, it just, it, maybe it's, a, it's like an expression of my uh, uh, determination, but not, with a, not too stressful, right? It's like a firmness. It's similar to with the uh, treating the repetitive thoughts like a puppy dog that needs to be trained, right? There can be a determination without it being over-efforting. And for me, summoning that tiger energy really was quite helpful at times. And it's something in me just, you know, said, what am I really here? What am I doing here? Do I really want to follow those thoughts again? And sometimes, uh, often, I actually said, no, I don't. So that can be helpful. We've also talked in terms of the second challenge of sleepiness and low energy, a number of different ways to work with that. Key is to know that it's very common with our concentration practice. Again, to, in all of this, to avoid, or at least to notice and try to avoid the quality of self-judgment, being judgmental towards one's own practice. Everything that I heard in the groups is completely normal and happens. There are occupational hazards of doing concentration practice. We will sometimes be sleepy. It's very typical the first day or to have uh, low energy. Um, We can also know sometimes whether there truly is a need for sleep. Sometimes there actually is, and we can honor that. If you get enough sleep, take a nap. Often we know that there's not a need for sleep, and the uh, sleepiness and tiredness can come for a multitude of other reasons. It can come because um, we're maybe just looking for mental ease, we're looking for some ease. Maybe we've been working very hard. We're not physically tired, but maybe we're mentally tired. And there's just, ah, let's just rest. Right? can be something like that. And we want to honor that, not to be judged or criticized. You know, and we can be skillful with that. Um, sometimes there's an imbalance of concentration and energy. Sometimes we have more concentration and we can have a state that's sleepy and somewhat dreamlike. We call it sinking mind. And we can, uh, in order to address that, we can rouse the energy. We can take a vigorous walk. We can stand up. We can open the eyes. These are all ways to work with the sleepiness. Also very helpful if there's sleepiness is moderation in eating, not to eat too much. That will help. That will help a lot. 
The third challenge, I'm going to take a little more time uh, with, is, is that often in our uh, concentration practice especially, it happens in mindfulness practice as well, we go through something like a purification process. And it's a very interesting aspect of concentration uh, is that we see a number of ways that uh, our mind brings up. We, see, we may see uh, qualities of uh, unresolved issues, or there may be some of our wounds come to the surface, even uh, quite often memories, some way that our mind is processing something. There can be memories from childhood or from the past, some kind of review. I remember once I was doing concentration practice over uh, an extended period, and uh, one evening, or one night I should say, at three in the morning, I suddenly woke up, sat straight up in bed, reviewed my entire history of intimate relationships, which I had not been thinking about previously, (laughs) reviewed it for two hours straight, and then went back to sleep and didn't think about it again. (laughs) I quickly interpreted that as part of the purification process. (laughs) And these things happen. We can sometimes find ourselves sad without content. You know, we can have uh, older issues come up and they can be hard and they, they, they are there. We can have dreams that are quite uh, powerful. Often the case with concentration retreats that dreams are more volatile. That can happen as part of the purification process. We can have more ordinary kinds of uh, challenges that, that, in a sense, we purify. We're, the, you know, the repetitive mind, the aversion, the irritation. Uh, a big one is the self-judgment. You know, that can be in something else that, in a way, has the opportunity to be purified. That can come up with a practice like this. We can notice that we are judging ourselves harshly. We may hook into some past sense of inadequacy. And it's important, if that's there, to notice it uh, as much as possible, not to feed it, not to nourish it. If it's there a significant amount, it can be helpful to do a little more of the loving-kindness practice. We might do a second session or a third session, really to, to come back to compassion and kindness and have that be more in the system. And so it's very natural if these, th- if these things come up. We can also be quite attached to concentrated states. Has anyone ever been attached to the pleasure and bliss of concentration? Of meditation? Probably we're here because we're at least partly attached. To be a teacher, one has to have considerable attachment. Or at least have worked with it. <laughs> A little bit of a joke. <laughs> so we, um, it's natural that we can get attached. And in the, in the text, there are all sorts of uh, counsels about not getting too attached to pleasure. Um, I think generally when we teach concentration, we say, um, 
Invite the pleasure. Don't worry too much about being attached to it unless the attachment gets too strong and then work with it. But, but enjoying the pleasure, enjoying the peace, enjoying the attachment, it's okay. And you'll know when you're overly attached. So, um, and there's, a, you know, there's this, uh, again, this beautiful uh, quality of pleasure, of the bliss, of the, the contentment that can be there. One of the ways that we can get attached to concentration practice is that we can always want to go to concentration. One of the qualities of concentration practice is that when we're concentrated, we temporarily suppress what are called the hindrances, the greed, the aversion, the irritation. When the mind is quite concentrated, that those aren't there. They're, they're not worked through but they're suppressed. And so we can, we can get attached there because my usual mind isn't working in the same way. And it doesn't mean we've worked through it. We may be deluded and think, oh, I'll just uh, be concentrated. I think when I was first beginning practice, I thought that I would just uh, stay in concentrated states for the rest of my life. <laughs> and that everything would be worked out. And that I wouldn't be irritable anymore, and I was very deluded (laughs) about that, and it led to suffering, (laughs) as you might imagine. Uh, But that's a quality of concentration, and so we can get attached to it, and we can sometimes even use it as a way not to look at certain things. We can use concentration in the interest of what we sometimes call spiritual bypassing where we get so attached to concentrated states and we think, oh, I'll just hang out with the meditative concentrated states and I don't want to go into this territory and I don't want to go into that territory. And that's not helpful. So we want to look out for that more, more in the long run. And then the, the last uh, challenge is the challenge of what we might call over-efforting. And generally in our concentration practice, We want to have uh, two qualities of concentration. There's a quality of more active effort in which we, that's that's where we keep coming back and uh, connecting with the breath, connecting with the main object, and then staying with it. And that takes a certain amount of active energy to see that the mind's wandering and to keep coming back. And we have to do that. There's also a quality of, of effort that is more receptive in which we're just, in a way, resting in the concentration. And we want to invite that also. If we're just doing the active quality of concentration, we can get into too much effort over-efforting. And so we want to, at times, just invite that restful quality. Something that's helped me a lot at the beginning of a sitting is to uh, sometimes just say, I don't know what's going to happen. This is a very mysterious process. Let me just be with the mystery and see what happens in this session. And that's been very helpful for letting go of thinking this has to happen or that has to happen. And so you might invoke that quality of mystery. And concentration is very mysterious. You can notice yourself very distracted one moment, sleepy, and then 10 minutes later, deep concentration. It's mysterious, and and it's very helpful to kind of acknowledge that quality of 
of the mystery. For some people, it can be skillful to sit for longer periods of time. Sometimes for me, I've liked to do this and I might sit for an hour or an hour and a half. And again, we can uh, not do that just sitting still the whole time. We could, you know, sometimes I would sit for 45 minutes, then I'd stand up for five minutes, then I'd sit down in a chair for another 45 minutes. And you might experiment with that. No need to, but sometimes sitting a little bit of longer can deepen the concentration. It can, it can be helpful in that way. We want to also look out for signs of over-striving or over-efforting. Some of the signs would be some tension in the body So that relaxation that we do with the qigong, very crucial. Look for tension in the body. It can sometimes be a tension in the head. Maybe we know that at times. We're over-efforting. We want to notice tension in the mind, tension in the body. Self-judgment can sometimes be connected with striving. I'm really trying hard, and I'm judging that I'm not getting where I want to get or where I should be. So we want to watch out for those physical signs, the mental signs of overstriving, and the, qu- the quality of, of judgment as well. Ultimately, the quality of effort in concentration becomes effortless. As we practice more and more, we may have moments in which the concentration is like riding the rails or is just present. We stay with the object and there's not that same kind of striving or pushing. And we don't, in a sense, need even to try to connect. We're just there. And that can be a very beautiful quality. Ultimately, the effort is effortless. Much like we know in probably a lot of our... uh, work that we do, or you think of, think of a musician. You know, a musician has to train to learn the scales and get better at that. And when one's at a high degree of musical capacity, the practice is like a performance. And there's a quality of effortlessness. And that's also, some of you may know this from sports. I know I was a competitive swimmer for 10 years, and I knew that... Um, at a certain point of proficiency, there could be a huge amount of effort, but it didn't feel effortful. And I imagine everyone knows this from some activity like that. Could be uh, maybe something that once was effortful is no longer effortful. Maybe it could be hiking, or it could be music, or it could be um, just a normal activity or your work. And I think it's something about the, the mind that as we, as we get familiar we go into that kind of absorption where we're just there and it's very natural and there's a lot of ease. And that is what we're training for. I think we've all done this in some activities. We may not have done it with the breath and we're training for that, but that's the direction. This quality of effortless effort is quite beautiful. And just a few final words about uh, 
the relation of concentration practice to the other two main forms of practice that we're, that we're looking at, the insight practice and the practice of that open awareness. I mentioned how concentration practice classically was taken as crucial for having insight that we can't really see so clearly into impermanence or into our own suffering or into the constructions of self without the mind having some degree of stillness. Things are happening too quickly otherwise. And as the mind gets more still, we start to see the way that we've constructed experience. We start to see how our minds have been uh, often um, formed by concepts. And as we deepen our concentration, we start to go beneath the level of concepts and see phenomena in a way more directly, work through those constructions of, of, our, of our experience. The Buddha thought that both concentration and insight practice were crucial. It's from the Buddha. One who has gained mental calm in oneself, but not the higher wisdom of insight into things, should make an effort to establish the one and attain the other. One who has gained the higher wisdom of insight into things, but not calm in oneself, should make an effort to establish the one and attain the other. One who has attained neither (laughs) should put forth intense desire, effort, exertion, impulse, unobstruction, mindfulness, and tension. In a relaxed way. (laughs) That was my addition. (laughs) So... Sometimes we divide concentration, insight practice, but in a way there are two sides of practice. And um, the great uh, teacher, uh, Achan Cha from the Thai forest tradition said, concentration and insight practice are like two ends of the same stick. We need both of them and they, they really inform each other. Concentration is a means Another, another reading from the Buddha. The spiritual life does not have gain, honor, and renown for its benefit, or the attainment of moral discipline for its benefit, or the attainment of concentration for the benefit. These are all basically supports for the deep aim, or knowledge and vision for its benefit. But it is this unshakable liberation of mind and heart that is the goal of the spiritual life. It's heartwood and its end. And so that's really the understanding of concentration. It's a very valuable capacity. It's not the end. It's a means to see more clearly, to continually um, notice what's there with more ease, with more more clarity. So I want to finish with a poem um, that I wrote. And this was a poem I wrote at the end of a period of concentration practice. this ancient vocation of simplicity. Purity of heart is to will one thing, said Kierkegaard. The breath opens the doors to outer life and to inner light, where we may for a time reside in silence, stillness, and brilliant space 
and be brought, refined, renewed, revived, revisioned, back to the next sounds, steps and sights of this journey home. So may these words be helpful for our, for our ongoing practice, both to uh, have a, maybe a larger understanding that gives us patience and perspective, and also tips for really practically implementing this practice. That's my hope for the talk. And thank you very kindly for your attention. We'll have, we'll have now uh, period of about half an hour of walking to really continue with the attention to the breath as we walk. And then at nine, we'll come back for the last sitting of the day and we'll be um, every day ending the sitting, the nine o'clock sitting with uh, some chanting, which is again, another way of really uh, touching the heart and uh, helping to still the mind. We'll do We'll be doing that each evening at the end of the session. And we, we may end a little bit early today because it's been, this is the first full day. I think I'll probably end us, uh, it won't be too long. The, 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 the discount version of the final evening set. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.